HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Join me every Wednesday as I speak with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode 84 of Feast Your Ears. Back in August, I had the pleasure of visiting the CIA campus in Hyde Park, New York. That's the Culinary Institute of America, not the Central Intelligence Agency. I toured their beautiful campus overlooking the Hudson River and had a chance to speak with two professors, Willa Zen and Beth Forrest, both of whom teach about food history. We had a lively conversation that I recorded, and you'll get to hear that today. They have a great program where they create a museum exhibit around a topic as a course of study. This allows students a deep dive into the history of a certain topic related to food. While I was there, the exhibit was focused on salt and sugar, from production to marketing in history. Up next, and likely up right now if you go and visit, was an exhibit on meat. Enjoy. Please tell me about it. All right, so we're in the Tober exhibit space. This is a a place that we're fortunate enough to have the students uh, in my food history class, which is part of the larger Applied Food Studies program, uh, where they spend a semester researching and curating a museum exhibit uh, that's open to the public. So because it was an applied food studies program, we were trying to figure out a way to move students from just writing that same research paper that I only read um, to them really becoming engaged with the primary sources and artifacts on a much more physical um, level. Who chooses the topic? I choose a broad topic, and I have to think about a couple parameters. So one is uh, we have a collection of 30,000 menus but they only go back to 1855. So, um, and we like to use, make, make use of, of our resources, um, and that way they get a chance working with an archivist as well, which is a really rather unique, I think, opportunity for undergrad, certainly. Um, so I need to do something that's broad enough that I have 20 students who can all find a topic that they want to study within that topic, sure. and then that weekend that's food related, uh, and that 
will work with our menus. So we uh, have done, right now it's sweet and salty, which gives us a lot of flexibility. Uh, the last one was fire in the belly, which looked at the role of um, fire from uh, how cooking grains transformed sort of Richard Wrangham theory all the way up to smoking in restaurants to the application of fire on food, right? So it, it allows you to be quite broad. Right. Um, we've done um, Dutch foodways, uh, both in the Hudson Valley to make it really local. Uh, we've done water as well that we co-researched uh, with the ecology class. And then next week we are installing the next iteration, which is on migration or immigration, but also refugees, enslaved peoples, and American foodways. We thought that would be, um, since it's in the news yeah. right now yeah, in particular, yeah. um, uh, is the next one. So um, yeah, this and the students really love it. And then They're, the physical objects also are part of the collection of the CIA, or where do they come some, from? Some are. Um, I guess this is for radio, I should describe there. Yes. There are some Coke bottles that look like they're from the 80s and 90s over there. There's right. a candy mold, a chocolate mold of a rabbit. Right. Um, probably mid-19th century, uh, 1850s, 1880s or something Yes, like that. I used to work at Boston University in the programs in food and wine, so I um, lucked out and have Julia Child's pickle forks, so oh. I loaned them. Um, a, a lot of our students uh, have very generous family members uh, as well as my colleagues. So um, Will is then standing next to me. It uh, really has wonderful artifacts and uh, she brings them in and allows us to put them on display. I grew up in a, in a collecting family. Yeah. My father has a, a very large collection of antique firefighting stuff, but so it means that I grew up working in an antique store and spending a lot of time at flea markets. I have yes. a large collection of cooking tools, so if you ever need any oh, I 19th will. century, yeah. 19th and early, to yeah. up to like, you know, up to the 1960s or so, Ooh. hand cooking yeah. tools, tongs and flippers and things so, like that. So, and I spend many a night on eBay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> or whenever you end up somewhere, Beth always ends up prowling the local antique stores or the yeah. bric-a-brac stores right. for yeah. things. Right, so I think that the following iteration is, um, is neat is the topic. So we were out um, this, uh, for a conference in California and happened upon a, a sort of thrift antique store and I found a bison jaw. So, you know, cool. you pick you pick those sort of things up yeah, when yeah. you're traveling now with future exhibits in mind. Well, definitely keep me posted. I mean, mm -hmm. I have, I have a, a lot of, for meat, you should you should borrow. I have a meat juice press. Oh, meat juice, absolutely. Ooh, yes. People who were convalescing and right. they lost their teeth before so, there was any dental. Somehow I think that I'm, I might be benefiting <laughs> from this interview more than you are, which makes me very excited. I I'm so, happy to be your gopher and go down to Brooklyn to fetch things. I'm always happy for an excuse to go down. <laughs> um, and so this is, so the, how much of the course is dedicated to creating this exhibit? Um, really almost all almost of it. Um, we, I now, I, I used to have a set syllabus and we would, the students would do extra research on top of it. And I found that they're just so busy and, um, and, and the level of research wasn't what I wanted. So now I change the curriculum every semester whereby the readings reflect the exhibit um, just so that, that we have a better exhibit in the yeah. end. Um, so there is some guidance by me, okay. but the students are given an awful lot of uh, responsibility as well. 
right? It's, uh, it's great. It's great that there's a space to do this um, here. And yes. how often, I mean, so this space is just open to the school community and any visitors who come to campus? It is uh, free and open to the public. Um, the other thing that we do is for our opening reception, we do foods, hist hopefully historic recipes, although sometimes there's a little bit of latitude um, that reflects the topic of the exhibit. Um, so uh, we open next two, no, two weeks from today, actually, um, and we're going to be serving food from the seven countries that are temporarily banned from coming to the United States. Got it. Got so. It. so for this particular exhibit that we're standing in, which is sweet and salty, mm -hmm. um, did the students, because they're also in culinary school, actually like make their own salt from ocean water or or, or refine their own sugars? Sadly, no. Okay. Yeah, would, would have loved to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously the creating of the exhibit is the practical yeah. part of the right. course. Right, uh, um, and they also have, you know, we have 15 weeks to do all of that. Um, they do, they are supposed to do a media component. Um, since uh, public history now, I think it's done a wonderful shift towards um, moving towards experiential mm -hmm. um, uh, visiting. Um, so we have, again, limited opportunities. We really, um, don't put this in, but we don't have any budget, yeah, right? Sure. So anything that I'm buying, I'm paying on my own. Right, right. So that is when it becomes um, challenging. We do, however, um, go into the kitchen once or twice a semester and do some uh, recipes, historic recipes, because what that allows them to do, and, and Willa does the same thing in her class, right, is you get to talk about such things as um, interpretation, right, interpretation of the past when your recipe doesn't give you all the information. Um, how do you do that? Same thing when you're approaching primary sources. Um, you can talk about ideas of embodiment, right, of oral tradition and knowledge versus written. How are things known and passed down? Um, so that's fantastic as well. Um, I just got uh, an idea from Jeffrey Pilcher, a food historian up in Toronto, um, and we were talking about the problem is the documentation for, say, the medieval period is always, um, well, it's banquets. Right? And so sure. you end up being, you know, uh, fetishizing about the banquets. And uh, so I took a tip from him, and after the students spent the day cooking uh, this great medieval feast, they then had to pick out from an envelope what class they're in, right? And so we had two aristocrats and 18, <laughs> 18 peasants, and I told right. the peasants, yeah, you're not, not, you're not eating any of this, right. but you can go start on the dishes, right? And you just saw this, this physical slump, right? And in the moment, I said, now how do you feel? Right? And you could also see the two aristocrats sort of stand up a little <laughs> bit straighter with a little bit of, dare I say, you know, prideful power. Right. Um, and, and so that, that ended up being a striking moment of, yeah, how would you feel? Sure. Right? Not entirely accurate, but at least a modicum of a sense. And do you, when you're, when you're looking at uh, historic or ancient recipes, what about techniques and tools? as it relates to those. Again, we talk about the how it would have been done. Um, we're using gas stove, um, but we do have them braise spices in a mortar and pestle, so um, I've had them make almond milk, 
uh, by Jim's like order and pestle. Yeah, right. and then yeah. a cheesecloth being like, sure. yeah, no, no food processor. And while that doesn't give them the entire experience, they start getting the idea of OG, the, the amount of labor to produce. And then, and then we talk about, yeah, now think about the next step of what has to be done to produce flour or olive oil, etc. I mean, for, for me, those conversations and especially tools are something that interests me. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to see how those things are tied into, say, the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. where you know, processed flour as a perfect example, yeah. there were people who were making bread in very small communities and very small spaces, and that made very much of it. Mm-hmm. I, I recently, uh, with my daughter, I read all of the Little House on the Prairie books, and there's, a, yeah. there's the long winter in that book where they're grinding grain in a coffee grinder because they don't have any flour because the train gets stuck. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a, you know, I talked to my daughter about why that was, a, you know, at that moment in time, there was commercial flour production. They couldn't get any. And they were making this sort of weird porridge bread out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always been interested in, in understanding that because there are a lot of things we take for granted, like, you know, kitchen knife, for example. Yeah. I don't know well, if you have something yeah. to say about that, but the modern kitchen knife is actually so new. I mean, mm-hmm. what we think of as an old knife and by its shape is actually, you know, oh. 200 years ago, no one would have had that. Well, Willa does an actually a really interesting yeah. uh, exercise in her class. Um, so we have other colleagues here on campus, too. Beth and I are just two of, of the several in the food studies program. So we've got very interesting backgrounds. Um, um, so Beth is a historian. I'm an anthropo- sociocultural anthropologist. We have an archaeologist, as well as American studies-based historian, as well as people from, we have a farmer, <laughs> for instance. Um, so one of the things I do in my anthropology food classes, think about that. What does technology mean, right? Because once upon a time, fire was the biggest technology, and then sliced bread was the biggest technology <laughs> with some, with some um, you know, developments in between. So one of the things that we do is um, I have them go and to understand the process of processing grain as part of a lesson on the invention of agriculture, but also the development of tools and what does tool use mean for diets. The students have to go find a rock that they think would be a good grindstone, they know most of them know nothing about rocks. We don't you have a geology <laughs> class either, so they're kind of like picking whatever looks good. And in this area, we have a lot of slate and shale, so sure. they're really crumbly, yeah. right? So they pick something that looks good. Um, they're grinding, and they tell them pick two rocks ideally. And I have a bunch that I've collected. I've got a rock collection in my office, and they're grinding things, and they find that the, the rock is chipping or flaking. It's crumbling. Um, it takes them a very long time, and they kind of go in thinking, oh, I'm a chef, it'll be done, you know, I'll get a whole bag of flour right. in 10 minutes. <laughs> and um, I usually have them weigh out or have them measure out what they start with and how long it takes them to do it. And I usually give them about 40 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes to grind, and they usually get maybe an ounce of flour at most if they're really <laughs> lucky. And usually that flour's got bits of sediment and rock in sure. it, and they're, you know, they're always really proud when they present this and like would you eat this do you like and, and your how teeth? long would it keep you full and would you like your teeth because right. uh this is not good for your dental work mm-hmm. here yeah. Um, yeah. and so it's it's it raises those conversations and it gets them thinking especially amongst um we have a lot you know we have half their culinary and half are baking pastry students or roughly speaking in the associates program and especially for the bakers you know it gets them thinking about gosh you know Flour is really a valuable resource. It takes a long time to do it. And it also contextualizes why things like industrial white flour was in some communities a godsend, right? Right, right. And, I mean, I available calories. And right. right. But, and, and to take it further, then, right. it complicates the story about power and privilege, right? So in the last, what, 
10 years, you're in Brooklyn, so I, you probably know this best, right? The, the return of the artisan, right? Yep. And, and, uh, and how much that's valued and how that's an absolute reflection of power and privilege. Oh yeah, right? for sure. And, oh. and, and, and also then, I mean, if you want to take that one step further, you then get into the issue of sure you have the artisan, say, mm-hmm. producing a product like, you know, whiskey, right? In Brooklyn, the price point of that whiskey is unrelated to its quality as mm-hmm. a beverage. It is related solely to its production cost, which in the modern world is not sort of how we view those things, right? In food and beverage, the value is usually ascribed to the quality of the product, not to just because you chose to rent a warehouse in Brooklyn that's 25 times more expensive than if you rented a warehouse in Kentucky. Right, right. So, so that's, I think that's the, the great thing about studying food in any of these iterations around campus is it really does allow us to look at much larger issues, right? Where the bias food is so universal at the same time, it's um, so specific Mm -hmm. and unique, Um, but you can look at larger social issues, you can look race, class, politics, right? Uh, Which Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily new, but it's still fairly new within the academic world. And and I think within food, Mm -hmm. the food academic world. I mean, the the tour that I just went on, I saw students who were waiting with bated breath for their grades about their bread that they mm-hmm. made, and they were standing in the hall, and they were all so nervous. And I remember mm-hmm. that when I was, you know, in college, and and but but that so there is value there because they are learning how to make mm-hmm. a great loaf of bread, so they can go out and potentially be a baker and have mm-hmm. a job. But then, what is the larger context? And it sounds to me like that's very much what you're providing to those students. That's what yeah. we're hoping we yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, we we really are. Um, and also, I don't you know I don't know. Well, I've, I've hung around with you for the couple kitchen days, but also um, one of the things that I encourage them to do, especially when you get a chance to do something that's more hands-on with them, like when we, a couple weeks ago, we did Mesopotamian recipes um, that have been translated and they're in this volume called The Food History Reader. And, um, you know, it, gets, it was a question in every sense up the stage of saying, are you thinking about this recipe in a historic perspective or are you thinking about, are you, or are you doing chef autopilot? because so much right. of what they're doing, they're on chef autopilot, and um, they don't always take a moment to stop and think, you know, and I think just that act itself, getting them to slow down and think for a moment, um, beyond just what they're autopilot trained to do, um, is a good life skill in general, but yeah. we're hoping to help, help them see it do. I had a student who, uh, I think one of the most poignant moments that I've had since I've been here at the culinary, whereby um, the students read Sidney Mintz's Sweetness and Power, Right, probably the classic, if there is one, um, within food studies, and the argument of both the um, early industrialization and ca- capitalism within sugar plantations, but also how it reflected back onto the Western white colonists, this idea of sweetness, the, the state of being, and how it was related to larger uh, powers, and then I take I took the students down to Phillipsburg Manor, which was part of the Triangle trade and uh, the wheat production in the Hudson Valley, sent down to the Caribbean islands, etc. And uh, and he was I said so you know a couple weeks later you know how has your um, you know your your attitude towards sugar shifted or has it? And he said, you know, I was in the apple pie uh, bakery. I was cooking or baking something, and I went to take a scoop of sugar, and I found myself stopping 
and just thinking. And for me, that was um, a phenomenal, yeah. uh, a phenomenal thing to hear from a from an educator. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. So uh, I'm curious to know, as people who spend a lot of time looking back mm-hmm. on food, what do you think someone in your position in, say, 200 years from today will think about the state of food now? Gosh. I think there are so many questions that need to be answered or perhaps so many apps that need to be taken. You know, it depends on if I want to be an optimist or if I want to be a dystopian. You asked us sure. on the day that, uh, that there was a, you know, mass warning about, right? So one, is there food? Yeah. Right? Are there people? If you're yeah, talking 200 sure. years, um, what are people eating? Um, how has the food system shifted? Um, and, and as part of that water access as well. Yeah, I mean, I, th- those are all good questions. I mean, I, you know, and, and I think it is a it is a topic that, um, you know, it's it's interesting to stand here and to look back a hundred years and to see what people are cooking mm-hmm. and what we're eating and to talk about a return to that in a sort mm-hmm. of artisan way, um, and then to look forward. I think you know, a, a lot of us, at least, I don't know, maybe in this bubble of the Northeast, are feeling like you know, end times are near in some right, sense. Right. And that this, the, the, the signs on the wall are not for progress, right? Yeah. They're for regress. And, and so we, Well, know. I think there's two divergent. Sure. If you look at modern, um, the modern culinary scene that, that, that remained, you have the farm to table, sort of that Chez Panisse style, back from the, the return to the land, 70s counterculture. And then you have the silver bullet and technology, right? Yeah. So it's, it still remains... Um, a divergent, not necessarily exclusive to each other, but right. right um, luckily, uh, before I got into food, I worked at the Center for Millennial Studies. So I spent many years studying people who thought the end of the world was coming. So I feel like I'm somewhat prepared. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, so how can we prepare? What? How can we, how can we prepare? Well, if we were to what, if, what did you learn? If we if we looked at my brother-in-law, well, that's the other interesting thing. Murphy, uh, who also teaches here, we talked about this fascinating survivalists and back to the land, both homesteading. Yeah. Right. So sure. again, you see, you see the optimistic and the pessimistic, or right, right, right. Uh, reconverging around food in a really unique and unexpected way. Homesteading and also going after some piece of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, trying to. I mean, I have a friend who is a who's a 
a beer brewer, but who, you know, one of his reasons for learning to brew beer was so that he could divest himself mm-hmm. from AB InBev and all of that stuff and so that he could, you know, make things that he wanted on his own. Yeah, it's where you see the, the, the absolute political um, polarization come back together. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But we've got interesting things on that note. Um, where, where these things are kind of being re- reconfigured in interesting ways. Um, in our Boku's restaurants, our flagship restaurant, and they've got this hand-cranked and liquid nitrogen ice cream. And the hand-cranked, it's the hand-cranked KitchenAid mixer, which is very popular, popular amongst you know, the home centers and the, the Amish and other people yeah. who have to get off the grid for whatever reasons or interests. And of course, you've got liquid nitrogen here and, and making what is, you know, very high, <laughs> very, you know, cutting-edge form of ice cream, right? And then it's being sold in this sort of modern French, modern mm-hmm. French-American restaurant. So these technologies are also being cherry-picked, or these interests right. are also kind right. of being cherry-picked mm-hmm. and reformulated in different ways. I think that's a really good example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder if we'll see anything. I mean, I recently read um, a, a short piece about the rice cooker and how the rice cooker as a piece of kitchen technology took over in Japan in mm-hmm. a very short amount of time and that it wasn't it was it was not like the microwave so the microwave changed the way people were cooking and the rice cooker changed the way people were preparing a staple mm-hmm. and made it faster and easier mm-hmm. and became the major appliance in Japanese kitchens within something like within 8 years of its introduction 80% or more mm-hmm. of households had one mm-hmm. rather than cooking their rice on the stove which they were cooking every day anyway and so i wonder you know i, which, I started which to think quite frankly isn't that technologically difficult you no, would think right it's, it's not right it's not but i think that in the modern age, Age, it, it has a couple of pieces. I mean, I use a rice cooker at home mm-hmm. all the time, and the key function for me is that it has a timer function. Mm-hmm. So that I can say, I want rice at 6 o'clock when I get home with my kids, so that that part of dinner is done. Yep. So I don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering what, you know, and I feel like the bread maker people try, like that was a thing. I remember, I, you mm-hmm. know, I, somebody gave me a bread maker and went to college, and they were like, here, now you can have fresh bread all the time, but I never did it. Because right. it honestly wasn't that, you know, bread wasn't hard to come by and it didn't save me any time really mm-hmm. to make bread at home so I'm wondering you know so I started to think about what could the next thing be and I don't know what that answer is but like what else like that may we see technology be able to do for us related to food and I started to think about um, how it relates to nutrition yeah and I'm wondering if it, go back to soiling well, the rice cooker is a status symbol. My favorite topic <laughs> soiling I have not yet interviewed the guy who created it but I want to and you've tried it though have I, I have not ever tried it. I have some Do you desk, have to taste actually. it? I keep meaning to order some, and I keep. I have some. Too. Yeah. Well, the rice cooker is a status symbol originally for families. Um, so it's this idea that you're modern and you could afford it because it was really expensive. And they still are. They I mean, still that, are. And yeah. that's something I find fascinating traveling in Asia. Yeah. That you know, here in the U.S., you see at, at most six different mm-hmm. versions, and usually it's about size. Yeah. And you go into an appliance store in Tokyo, and there are hundreds. And some of them are very expensive, $1,000, $2,000. Yeah, and the, the ones here are all kind of the same kind of crappy. You press the button yeah. and it cooks. And it's the same formula as when it was first invented. And the ones in Asia are just, it, you know, your rice cooker is also a subtle signifier of who you are and your family and what you're sure. for. Well, here's a TV, right? Yeah. Here, you know, in this country, how big is your TV? Yeah. When did you get a flat screen? Yeah. I mean, you know. If you bought the right rice cooker, you're doing okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've read Warren Malaska's book on the future of food. No, I haven't. But he looks at the future of food, food in historic, so what have past people said about the future. Oh, So that might be great. Really interesting. Yeah, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll definitely take a look at that. So, so what do you think about Soylent? 
Well, it's an interesting product. Um, and I, I bring it up in my classes with my students. I think you do as well. We talk about it. And, um, you know, they're always kind of split and, and divided about what they feel about the product. Um, and I said, you know, the thing I always bring it down to is what set of values are you thinking about? Because if you're thinking about the set of values and prioritize what the founder prioritized, which is your time is more important, rather, you know, and you'd rather save time from taking time away from cooking and food and eating and food preparation, and you'd rather save it that way, then this is a great product for you. But if you're somebody who is worried just about nutritional support, right, this might be a good product for you if you, for whatever reasons, you know, you need to have the proper calorie count. Um, but I said, you know, for a lot of us, you know, we tend to focus on the gastronomic side of food and, and are interested in eating together and, and a beautiful plate, a nice table. This might not be as appealing. A different sensorial experience yeah. and but, conviviality. Yeah, but also just completely different values. And it doesn't necessarily mean one is better than the other, but sure. it emphasizes what where your priorities lie. And I think it can be a spectrum. I mean, right. so the uh, Joe Brown, who's the editor-in-chief of Popular Science, and I talked about this on Feast Years a few weeks ago, and he keeps silent in his office mm-hmm. because he doesn't like to eat alone. And so he feels like unless he has someone to sit down and have a conversation with while he's having a meal, right. he might as well just drink soda and keep working. Mm-hmm. And so often that's what he will do at lunch or his wife is away and he's, you know, and he's on a deadline and things like that mm-hmm. because he just doesn't see the value. And there's no way he said he gets, you know, there's no enjoyment in going to the crappy salad bar downstairs from his office and then sitting at his desk and eating a crappy salad that he paid too much money for. Mm-hmm. So he might as well sit at his desk and just drink that and keep working. Yeah. So which energy, I, you know, energy bars, I would say, fill the same sure. purpose. Sure. So it's not replacing 100% all of your meals, all your food. Right. Yeah. Which, of course, then there's the issue of Kind Bar getting sued about them just being candy bars. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Going back to the exhibit that we were standing in about sugar. And <laughs> right. sort of, you know, when did the candy bar become a thing? And then how did marketing change that a candy bar into an energy bar to make it healthy, theoretically? Exactly. Well, and that's, I mean, that's really one of the wonderful things about sugar um, is that it was introduced, it was medicinal when uh, sugar first entered, certainly the European um, landscape. Um, So we have medical texts going back um, centuries that that talk about it. And same thing with salt, right? And salt of uh, whether some of it's healthy, how much is healthy, substitutions. um, And then if we want to get to the gastronomic side of it, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, eat a hamburger with no salt and a hamburger with salt or eat some vegetables with no salt and eat some vegetables with salt, there's a flavor component there as well. Biological, cultural, political, economic, it encompasses it all. I mean that, and and you know, and, and as I said earlier in the, in this conversation, um, I think that, that that's really important that the students here are getting that context mm-hmm. um, from from your classes and from going through the motions of looking at these things, because even if there are things you already know about, I mean, I walked into this room and sure I've looked at, I know how salt was, you know, how salt flats worked and how salt was evaporated, but it's still interesting to see it and just even have a few moments of brain space to think about it and to think about oh. Yeah, this is really hard to get. I mean, we, you know, I just go and I pull them all down off the shelf, and I, mm-hmm. you know, what does that really mean? Right. Um, and what does it mean economically, and, and, and all of those. Uh, yeah. So, those the question that I always pose to my my student, well, two of them. One, why does change happen? What does it mean? Right. And then the second thing of whose history are you telling? That's right. a, that's, that, that's that's that is you know, I would say that may be the most important 
question. Certainly in our time and what you're talking about for mm -hmm. the next, you know, talking about the slave trade and, and enslaved people. So. Mm -hmm. Cool? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Hope you liked our, my interview that I did up at the CIA. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes if you do like it, and please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. I have to make a shameless plug here for my first book, which came out August 1st. Vinegar Revival is a guide to making and using vinegar at home. You can order it from your local bookstore or on Amazon. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram, at the foodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.